So what am I supposed to do? Uh, that's a question we, we go through life asking that. Sometimes it's just on a day-to-day basis and what are our instructions for the day, but there's a general sense we just want to know what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to be about in life? There are many people, they don't understand what they're supposed to do. What is their calling? We have to realize there's plenty of people out there that will want to tell you what they think you should be doing. And there's others that want to decide that for themselves and to, to make their own calling and decide what that is. But what is it that, that God wants us to do? What are we called to do? And I think in this passage, there's many things we're going to get out of this, but at least a few things we're going to see that if you are someone that wants to follow Jesus Christ, if you want to be a, a disciple, there's some things we can draw out of here that tell us this is what our lives should be about. This is what we are called to do. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 5. Let's read all of 1 through 11 first, and then we'll go through and dig into this. Chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit, a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the great catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So we'll look through this. We're going to draw a few points from this. And from the first three verses at the beginning, we're going to draw a point that disciples are called to hear the word of God. So we see what's going on here. in the end of Luke 4, he was in Capernaum. Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was uh, doing a lot of healings, a lot of miracles, a lot of teaching. And people were really responding uh, to Jesus. And so here we see that there, are, there is a large amount of people that are crowding in. They want to hear Jesus. And probably having a difficult time. They didn't have sound systems. They didn't have uh, all the things. The people are getting in each other's way. Uh, and they're out there they're by the Lake of Gennesaret. You may say, okay, what is, the, what is the Lake of Gennesaret? And actually, the Lake of Gennesaret is actually just another name for the, the Sea of Galilee. So you see that many times in Scripture refers to the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, why does it, it calls it a lake sometimes, and it calls it a sea other times. Well, in our way of classification, we would say that the Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake. But uh, they refer to it as a sea sometimes because it was very large. And it was. The Sea of Galilee uh, was about 8 by 14 uh, miles. So it was pretty big. So I was trying to, think, trying to visualize this a little bit. So I thought, well, I'll go to the internet and I'll compare it with some other lakes just to kind of, just to, just to see. So in our area here, this is, uh, just for a regular lake, first of all, this is Barlow Lake uh, in the center here. So just a, maybe a typical lake size. There's bigger, there's plenty of smaller lakes. But we know around here at least, well, uh, if you go a little further south, you get Gun Lake. And as far as normal lakes go, Gun Lake is a very large lake. I mean, if you think of uh, Barlow Lake, uh, and you compare that to, to Gun Lake, this is the same scale. I mean, you could fit uh, Barlow Lake in any of those little sections in Gun Lake. Uh, to me, it always seems like uh, Gun Lake looks like a, a giant mutated four-leaf clover. Um, they probably don't call it giant mutated four-leaf clover lake. Probably wouldn't be as good for tourism, but in any of those little, you know, uh, clover parts, I mean, you could fit several uh, Barlow lakes. So Gun Lake is a big lake, and I say this because I know many of you are, are familiar with Gun Lake. So now for comparison's sake, uh, we'll need to shrink down Gun Lake a little bit, okay? So it's the same lake, and... Now we'll compare this to the, the Sea of Galilee at the same scale. You can see why they would maybe refer to it as a sea sometimes, uh, because it was a very large lake. So that's where they were at. And this is um, a, a modern map. Capernaum would have been up here on the, uh, the, the northwest side, and that's where Jesus was uh, at the end of chapter 4, and it uh, seems like perhaps he's around there uh, still. So the crowd is pressing in, and there's all these people they want to hear, and so Jesus comes up with a solution. And he sees uh, some, some fishermen, they're, they're uh, taking care of their nets, they pull their boat in after a long, hard night of fishing, and he asks one, he asks Simon, and we'll see it's, it's Simon Peter, so when we refer to the Apostle Peter, uh, it's the same person, just multiple names. And so he asks him if he could use one of his boats. So he takes the boat and he goes in it. And it says that uh, he goes out a little ways and uh, is teaching from the boat. But I think the first application we need to see is that the crowd, just notice it says they were pressing in to hear the word of God. I think that's a good thing, isn't it? That you have a crowd that they want to hear it's not even saying here they wanted just to see the miracles and different things. If you just take this on its surface, they were there for the right reason. They wanted to hear Jesus proclaiming the word of God. And it would be my hope and my prayer that for us, that that's why we're here. That that's why we, part of the reason that we get together, there's more than that that happens when we gather together as Christians. But that's one of the main things. We come together to hear the word of God. And so as disciples, we want to check with ourselves. Is that, is that a desire of our heart? That we don't want to just casually hear the Word of God, but we're willing to even press in. So we're willing to, to be paying attention. We're doing what it takes to prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, 
as we come, whether it's here or whether it's to a Bible study, that we're, we're there to, to hear and to be focused and to receive the Word of God and to be changed by it. And I hope that means, too, that um, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we want to care about each section here. There's no dispensable parts. And so I would hope that even if there's weeks that you miss, that you're able to be looking at this on your own, that you're able to get a, uh, a CD from the back, or you go online and watch the video so that you can be getting all of what God is, is, is teaching us through this gospel here. So let's be pressing in to hear the word of God. So again, it says that Jesus, he gets into one of the boats. He asked him to put it a little bit from land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. So, of course, he did this. That way they're not all crowding in. It gives a little bit of healthy space. And also the acoustics over the water uh, would have been pretty good. And so Jesus was taking practical steps so that people could physically hear the word of God. They needed to be able to do that. And I think it's interesting, too, uh, he, he knows he sat down. Uh, to, not just because you shouldn't be standing in a boat, uh, but also we saw a few weeks ago that that's how the, uh, the rabbis, they would teach from a seated position. Seems a little bit different, uh, but that's how they did this. So uh, remember a few weeks ago we had that, we had a chair up here and uh, to kind of remind us that that's how Jesus w- was teaching. It gave me an idea for this one. I thought we, we could have done this. We have this, you know, this baptismal here. We could have filled it up and I could have brought in a kayak. <coughs> Floated the kayak in there and, and taught from that. Uh, but, you know, I realized just because I have an idea doesn't mean I should actually do it. <clears throat> Plus, <clears throat> a kayak, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't really be big enough. I mean, Jesus wasn't teaching from a kayak. Uh, to just kind of help you visualize what these boats are like, uh, this is kind of interesting. Um, they actually found a, in 1986... Uh, they found, buried in the mud, and this was uh, at the ancient city of Magdala, which would have been right about here in the uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, they found buried in the mud a first century fishing boat that somehow the way it had been buried and the type of you know, silt and everything that was over it, it preserved it from decay. So 2,000 years old, dated from the first century. So the picture of it here, it's just kind of an amazing thing to think of, you know, finding something like that. Uh, it's being supported by some metal braces, but uh, the remains of this. And it looks like the, the fishermen that have been using this, well, first of all, it can tell us a few things. This boat measured 27 feet long by 7.5 feet wide. So, yeah, these, these were big enough that you could have several men on board there as a crew doing their work and, you know, hauling in fish. Uh, they weren't out there on a, on a rowboat, you know, casting lines. They were net, they used nets, these big, you know, giant nets they would put out. And it was a lot of work. These things, especially when you get these things wet, to draw these back in and to do this over and over and over again. It required a few people to do this. Uh, but this boat, uh, they could tell that it had been, over time, cobbled together with different types of wood, kind of whatever the... A boat owner could find to keep it floating as long as he could. And then it looks like they're able to deduce that at the end it just wasn't worth uh, keeping. And he stripped it of any valuable parts, the anchor, uh, even a lot of the nails, and just you know, send it out and let it sink. 
And so it sank and got covered, and they found it in 1986. That's an amazing thing. But here's something. So Simon Peter probably had a boat like this, probably a very you know, valuable thing. But Simon Peter, he used his resources to help people to hear the Word of God. So on one hand, it is important for us, we're called to hear the Word of God, but Peter also, he used his resources in a practical way so that people could hear the Word of God. And it's a challenge to us as well. We want other people, not just us to hear it, but we want others to hear that. And so I thank you for those that you use some of your resources to do that. Some of you did that in a very practical way. Uh, those of you that donated towards the, the new speaker system. I mean, same as Jesus out there in the water with the acoustics, uh, having a new speaker system, which we were constantly trying to uh, adjust and get everything just right hopefully so that people can actually hear it. But we want people not just to be able to hear it with their physical ears, but to, to have open ears to take that in. And so I thank you also for those of you that pray for God to open ears so that we're not just hearing sound waves, but it's penetrating our ears and penetrating the hearts of people. Be thinking about what are, what are ways that you can use your resources, time, talent, treasure, to help people to hear the Word of God. Now, Peter, he was happy to oblige Jesus when it came to proclaiming God's word. Okay, so in this, it's a religious context. He's ready to help him out. But what about when the requests would come into his world, his professional world? Well, let's see what happens next. And the second point we'll draw from verses 4 through 7 is that disciples are called to trust and to do what Jesus tells us to do. So again here it says that when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, he said, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now how do you respond when someone tells you how to do your job? Is that something you, you appreciate that, right? Especially when it's somebody that really doesn't know what they're talking about, or they're from a different field, they come in. Yeah, usually people don't tend to respond the best to that. That's a natural reaction that we tend to have. And so you hear you have a carpenter telling a professional fisherman what to do. Uh, the carpenter, teacher, and he's trying to tell Peter how to fish. I mean, that's what Peter does. He knows what he's doing. And what Jesus is saying doesn't even make sense. This isn't even good strategy. So Peter's, in Peter's expert opinion, this was a bad idea from a few reasons. From experience, I mean, they had just been out there working all night, all through the night, and they hadn't caught anything. So they come back and say, this is not worth it. This is not a night. They're, they're not out there. We're not, we're not getting them tonight. And also, night was the best time to catch fish, but uh, last night was so worthless. It was a bad idea from the sake of efficiency. Um, it, was, it was daytime now, and daytime was not the best time. The fish went out into the deeper water during the day. <coughs> and in deeper water, if you're fishing with nets, it's harder to, to catch them. And they were exhausted. They were already worn out. It's like, this is not time to be doing this, to be expending futile effort. This is time for us to, 
finally go home because uh, we're worn out. We were hauling in these heavy nets all night long and we're finishing things up. So there's probably some natural reaction. Peter's thinking, I don't want to do this. It doesn't make sense. But look what he actually does. He, he trusts Jesus. He acknowledges his authority. And he decides that he's, he's still going to do what he needs to do. He calls Jesus Master. We see that in verse 5. Even though um, you know, Peter was clearly the authority on that boat. I mean, he was the, uh, in charge of that boat and with the other fishermen, James and John. And if we compare this with Mark, maybe his brother Andrew was uh, there as well. Do you want to hear a dumb joke? I think, I think Peter um, might have been um, uh, into computers. He might have been into IT. He was a network administrator. <laughs> he was a network administrator? Okay, come on. You, you, I'll be here all week. Okay, thank you. All right. So, computer guys, that one was for you. Okay. So he, he says, okay. Jesus, you told me to do this. I'm going to obey you. And he has the guys let down the nets. And we see the results. He says when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Large is an understatement. Uh, such a large amount that their nets were breaking. Okay? And they signaled to their partners to, uh, to come in. Uh, they had a signal. They were probably good ways off, so... Um, I don't know what kind of you know, motions they were doing. And they came and uh, brought the, uh, the boats, and they filled the boats so much, the boats were starting to sink. So this was an amazing, miraculous thing. I think Jesus you know, somehow was uh, you know, summoning the fish. Uh, however this was working, this was a, a standout, uh, straight-out miracle that Jesus was doing for them. So... Peter obeyed Jesus even when he could have argued that this was his area of expertise. You know, Jesus, don't be meddling with my professional life. You know, church, that's one thing, but, you know, my professional life, I'll, I'll, I'll do as I see fit. Nope. But he was willing to submit to Jesus. A few applications we can draw from this. First, you know, in the same way, we need to trust that God's directions are the best, even when they go against our sensibilities. And that will happen many times. That if we leave it to our own uh, expertise at life, at business, or whatever it is, we think, well, this is not the way to do it. But we need to trust that what God says is, is best, and it's right. And if not just trusted enough to give head knowledge to it. I mean, Peter didn't say, well, yeah, I, I trust to, uh, you know, obey this, but he had to actually get around to actually doing it, too. So he had to put out the nets. Also, realize that sometimes Jesus will ask us to do things when we are exhausted. Jesus, I'm seeing some heads nod. Yeah, he does. Notice that. Well, guess what? There's a biblical example there, too. Jesus will ask us to do things when we're exhausted. He will ask us to do things sometimes when, from our way of looking at it, the conditions are not optimal. And we would wait for better time to do some of these things. But when Jesus asks us to do these things at those times, we need to remember 
One, that he will, he has his reasons. And that he will make it worth it with the results that he decides to bring with this. And also that he will give you the grace that you need. Okay, I mean, these men, they were exhausted. But when you see God start to work through you, God just gives you that grace that overcomes that, that exhaustion. He will give you the strength that you need, even if, humanly speaking, we're worn out. And this reminds us, too, that the, the results, are, they're because of him. That it's not ultimately or even really because of us. If we always did things at our peak performance or when it was the, the best, most strategic time, we could take pride in our strength and our wisdom. But when God asks you to do something, when you're worn out, when you've got nothing left and it seems like the worst time, and you still see God working through you, you know that it's, it's not you, it's God working through you. And that's an awesome thing. Also, they have been laboring all night and they didn't catch anything. Ponder this. Without Jesus, what are your labors accomplishing? So many people, they work long through the night. They're toiling away at their, uh, their, their business, their, their dream, their hobby, uh, at the office. And maybe in the world's eyes, they're, they're collecting things. But what are we collecting that's of real value? Without Jesus, what are your labors accomplishing? And we see that through this, that God can and, and will do great things through ordinary people that trust and obey his calling. Heard it said sometimes that what are the type of people that God is, is really looking for to follow him and to serve him? What kind of servants? What kind of volunteers? I've heard it said that God is looking for people that are, that are fat. F-A-T. Faithful, available, and teachable. And that's something that stood out to me so much. You could have all kinds of skills. You could have all kinds of things. But if you are not faithful, if you're not available to be there when Jesus calls you to do this, it's not going to work. And if we're not teachable, if we're not willing to, to learn, uh, to improve, to submit, to, to be able to take input from, from God and from others that God puts in our lives, it's not going to be a good thing. We need to be fat, F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable. Because disciples are called to trust and to do what God tells us to do. Next, we see the response that Peter has to this huge amount. And looking at verse 8 and 9, we're going to say disciples are called to humble themselves before the Lord. And maybe there's other ways that you could describe this. Uh, so let's look at what happens. And if you think of a better way to, to say this, uh, feel free to write that down in your notes, whatever is uh, worthwhile for you. But it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because they were so astonished by this catch. So he actually says to Jesus, depart from me. That he is, he is afraid. Okay, Jesus has to tell him later, fear not. So he is, he is terrified by this. He's traumatized by what he sees. Now you think of the different options that someone could have when this type of miracle happens, especially if this is your livelihood, uh, you're a fisherman, this is what you need. Well, I mean, one response could just be a type of um, giddy amazement. 
Like, wow, look at this. This is amazing. I can't believe this. This is, wow, this is so impressive. Cool, cool, cool. That's not how he responds. He could respond um, in you know, a very you know, logical way, thinking through this, like, hmm, oh, this happened, and the logical consequences of this miracle, I can deduce that, well, okay. there's some things we can draw from these miracles. We should, these are signs pointing to who Jesus really is. But that's not what, how Peter responds. Now, a way you might think you'd respond, too, is, you know, he's a businessman. He's a, he's a business owner, and uh, R.C. Sproul draws this out in The Holiness of God, talking about Peter's uh, reply, and he says, you know, he could be thinking to himself, you know, hey, I get how much at market for each of these fish? Ka-ching, ka-ching. Hey, Jesus, how about you and me? I got a proposition for you. Hey, let's go into business. All you have to do is show up once in a while and do your, uh, do your thing here, and I'll cut you in uh, 50-50, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be raking it in. But that's not how he replies either. Instead, he falls down and he realizes um, in almost in fear, in godly fear and terror, that he is in the presence of someone that he does not understand. That he is in the presence of someone that is in another category from him. He's starting to glimpse that this is not an ordinary man. And so he is, he is fearful. He's standing in the midst of someone with power beyond his understanding, someone holy, someone great. Thinking about it, there's two ways that we should be like Peter and one way we should not. Like Peter, yeah, we need to realize that Jesus is someone that is out of our league. He is not just another friend or, or buddy for us to have. He is someone transcendent, someone holy, someone awesome. And if we have just too much of a casual relationship with God, instead of realizing His greatness in a way that makes us want to bow down in humility, then something is wrong with our understanding. Also, like Peter, we need to realize, Peter realized that he was a sinner. He was immediately struck by this. And whatever self-righteousness Peter had before, it disappeared as he realized he was standing in the presence of someone greater than he and that he was unworthy to follow Jesus. That's something we need to realize too, that if, if we want to be disciples, if we want to follow Jesus, one of the requisites is we need to realize that technically we're unworthy to follow him. If we think we're doing Jesus such a big favor by following him, that he should be just so thrilled that he's recruited us because we really needed you to volunteer. No. This is a huge privilege. We are, we are unworthy because we are sinners. And we need Jesus. The mission that he came at the end is to die on the cross to pay for our sin and to offer us salvation as a free gift. And so to follow Jesus, we need to realize we're sinners and unworthy. But unlike Peter... We don't want to say, depart from me. That's what many people do. They're, God makes them nervous because they realize that they're sinners. They realize that He is a holy God. And sinners, we want to hide from a holy God like a criminal wants to hide from a police officer. The thing is, God is the only one that can save us. 
He's the one that made us, created us. He's the only one that can rescue us. And he is holy. And he loves you. And so isn't it such a good thing that here Jesus did not honor that request. Jesus did not say, okay, you told me to go away, I'm going to leave. Sometimes we may want something of Jesus and it's very good when he decides otherwise. Instead, he said, no, you're, you're going to follow me. And he tells him what he's going to be calling him to do. We see that in verse 10. That disciples are called to, to catch people alive for Christ. Verse 10 reads, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. The word there is the, for men is anthropos. It's a standard word for, for people. So it's men or women. But he's calling him, he's saying, hey, you, you were a fisherman. You are now going to be a fisher of men. I'm going to give you, you think this is a great catch. There's a greater catch that's out there. Something of more importance, more value to be bringing people uh, people that are designed to, they're going to live for eternity into relationship with God, into a right relationship with Him, to save people. He's saying, this is what your calling is going to be, and this is what you are going to do. I think it's interesting, the word for catch there, it says you will be catching men. It's a combination of two words that one means to catch or to hunt, and then also a word that means alive. So it's to catch alive, to capture alive, to, to take them alive. I think this is interesting because you know, in normal fishing, you, are, you have the fish, they're in the lake, they want to be in the lake, they're happy in the lake, they, they can survive in the lake, it's good. You pull them out of the lake and eventually they're going to die because they're supposed to be in, in, in the lake. But realize when it's, when it's fishing for people, when it's trying to, to evangelize, trying to help people to, to know Jesus Christ, we're, we're pulling them out of the lake in a sense. And that's still, it's where they want to be, but it's a lake where there's death. I mean, that's where they're, they're spiritually dead. We're pulling them out to life, to real life, so they can be born again, so they can have eternal life that starts now and extends forever. So then when through your efforts, whether it's individually, God working through you, or collectively, and through a church, that someone is saved through that. We're making a difference for God and for His glory with a, with a life that's going to live for eternity. What an important, what a huge calling that is. Someone that can give glory to God as Savior forever and ever. In the book of Jude, in verse 23, it says, we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. You think of it in Revelation 20.15. It says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When there's a lake that's described as a lake of fire, that's not the type of lake you want to be in. As sinners, we may think we want to be there, but that is just death. That's, that's condemnation there. And by doing evangelism, by, by helping people come to Christ, we're pulling them out of that eternity of a lake of fire to be with God forever, 
catching people alive, catching them for life. What a great calling it is to pull people from the lake of fire. A few fishing tips for you. Go to where the fish are. Okay? That makes sense in the lake, and it makes sense in evangelism too. So we need to be, we need to be going where the fish are. Think about how that might apply to you. As we, as we are the church scattered throughout the week, people that you come in contact with, the people at your work, people that you connect with. Another fishing tip, you don't want to foolishly scare the fish away. Okay, the net may be frightening enough, but we don't want to be splashing around the water making a, a fool of ourselves. A big one, do what you can and depend on God for what you can't control. See, evangelism is both, it's our a responsibility that's been given to us and it's also God's work. See, Jesus, he caused this miraculous catch to happen, didn't he? Okay, but Peter was still called to obey and to put down the net. In the same way, in evangelism, we're called and responsible to go out into the water and to cast our nets wide, but ultimately the catch is up to the sovereign and miraculous work of God. It's this combination, trusting in His sovereignty, but also fulfilling our responsibility. Kent Hughes writes, The catch is up to the sovereignty of God, as any fisherman can tell you, but if a fisherman refuses to drag his net, he will never catch anything at all. The same is true in Christian evangelism. We are called to cast a wide net by inviting our neighbors to Bible study, bringing our friends to church, speaking to family members about spiritual things, testifying to God's goodness in our daily lives, sending out foreign missionaries, and sharing the gospel in every way we can. This is our calling both as a church and as individual Christians. So we do this, but we trust God for the results. Another fishing tip, be patient. It's true in real fishing, it's true in evangelism. And last, I think, realize too, we often need to work as a team. I mean, if your only view of fishing is one guy out there with a, with a reel, yeah, there's some evangelism like that, that God is going to send you one-on-one. But, you know, that's probably not the way Peter would have thought of it. Jesus did say this to him individually, but he was wor- used to working with a crew. And so don't think that the evangelism we do is all done in the same way. That there's ways that maybe a few of you working together can be working in somebody's lives. And maybe that's through Bible study here. Maybe that's you know, inviting someone. Maybe that's you know, going out in the community, building relationships. But also with us as a church. Us working together uh, with different roles that we have that what we're doing all together is bringing glory to God. And one of the main ways is through evangelism that he has called us to do. So realize this is our, one of our main callings as a church. And finally, we see that disciples are called to leave everything and to follow Jesus. Verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I realize, too, this was at the height of probably their greatest catch they had ever had, that they had ever seen. And they were willing then to walk away from that. 
to walk away from their business, to walk away from their, uh, their, their financial assets, and to follow Jesus. And realize that when you leave something that is of great value to follow Jesus, you show that Jesus is, a, is of even greater value to you when you do that. You know, that fishing boat that they found in 1986, I was thinking about that. You know, they dated it from uh, the materials and they did carbon dating and all this. And it dated from uh, really the, the time of the first century and really covering this period of time. And I thought, you know, kind of hit to me like, wouldn't that be cool if, what if that is like actually like Peter's boat that he abandoned and he let sink? And it was kind of a neat thing to think about for a second, but then I realized, no, I know it's not. Um, well, at least in, the reason for that I say that is because the boat that they found, you know, they stripped it of everything. They stripped the anchor out. They stripped the sail out. They took out a bunch of the nails so they could reuse those. And so we don't see Peter doing that. We don't see him saying, well, they left everything, but after you know, salvaging as much as they could and much as they could still take along, then they followed Jesus. You know, unless somebody else found their abandoned boat and uh, did that later on. Who knows? Now, this is the part of the sermon where you might be waiting for the part where I tell you that you don't really have to give up your stuff to follow Jesus. You want me to tell you that you don't literally have to leave all your stuff because maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm okay with following Jesus, but I also really love my stuff. Well, well, that's the problem there, isn't it? It's not as much the stuff, it's our, our love for our stuff. So yes, I will tell you that sometimes you don't literally have to leave everything behind. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we're called to leave our profession, to leave uh, our, our financial uh, assets. Uh, sometimes called to leave our friends. Sometimes we are. But oftentimes we're, we're not. But every time at least mentally. And in our attitude, we have to give them up. That's the response that we should have as, as people that are, uh, that are saved. That we need to, in our hearts, transfer ownership of the things that we have to the Lord and be willing to have the things that we have just be things that we manage and use for His glory as He pleases. Is your devotion to God, in your devotion to God, are you, more like a, uh, are you more like a chicken or a pig? A chicken and a pig were talking one day about how much they appreciated the farmer who owned them. And they decided they wanted to do something nice for the farmer, so they talked about it and they decided they wanted to uh, make him breakfast. And so, like this morning, they decided they're going to make him uh, the chicken suggested, let's make him eggs and bacon. And the pig replied, okay, but realize that for you, that's a small donation. For me, that's a total commitment. What kind of disciple are you? Small donation, full commitment. Have you decided to follow Jesus? That's what a disciple means, a follower. Or are you too attached to your fishing boat to leave it? I'll tell you, it's worth following 
Jesus. Give your fishing boat over to the Lord as whatever you have isn't, even if he has you as the manager, but realize that it's for him to use as he pleases. And most importantly, you just simply need to follow him. He is worth following and whatever he tells us and calls us to do. And that is what we are supposed to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to follow you. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to, to be on your team, to be on your side, to be called to you, Lord God. Because we are sinners and we admit that. We acknowledge that. That each of us, we have sinned every day that we've rebelled against you. And so that ultimately, the only reason that we can follow you is because Jesus Christ paid the price on the, co- on the cross for us. Our following you does not earn us salvation. Following you is the response of a changed heart that has been saved, that has been pulled out of the, the lake of fire as our destiny, Lord God. Help us to follow you with, with a full commitment. Help us to realize how great and how valuable you, you are and that there's nothing that we, can, that we can give up if you call us to that won't be worth it. We trust you. We want to live for you. Help us to catch other people into a living relationship with you, Lord God. Be with us in our evangelism as individuals, as a church, and may it all be for your glory. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.